0: The is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Today on Political Rewind, Georgia elected officials react to the publication of the Mueller report... Campaign cash is pouring into the coffers of congressional candidates. Governor Kemp signs a breakthrough medical marijuana law. All that and more. Political Rewind starts now. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Really glad to have you all with us uh, today. Um, Of course, the big news that's uh, been dominating the political headlines and most of the general headlines, for that matter, the release of the Mueller report. We are going to talk about it today, but we're going to talk about it in the context of how Georgia's elected officials are responding and what the Mueller report might do in terms of the impact on the 2020 elections here in the state. Joining me, as he does every Friday, uh, Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him in the uh, Wednesday and Sunday paper, and he oversees the politi- Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hi. Great weekend coming up. Uh, yeah, We could all use a little break after the kind of uh, uh, week that we've had in in politics. Uh, so you're right. The weekend will be very welcome. Amy Steigerwald is with us. She is a professor of political science, Georgia State University. We're always glad to have you here. Thank you for being with us, today. Thank Amy. you for having me again. Heath Garrett, Republican consultant, uh, works with uh, Johnny Isaacson, uh, among other Republicans, not only here in Georgia, but you have clients in across the country,
2: across the country. It's great to be here with you.
1: It's, it, we've missed you for the last couple of weeks. You've been in, involved in other activities. So thanks for coming back. And we're glad to welcome back Amir Faroki who is the city councilman from District 4. Four. Two. Two yeah. in the Atlanta City Council. You've got Old Fourth Ward, parts of Midtown, parts of Downtown. Got that right? Yep. Amy Steigerwald, you in this district? I am, That's yes. a all right. Good. Yep. So during the breaks, you can do your business with him in terms exactly. of that, those sidewalk problems. Where's your Midtown neighborhood Association. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about... Uh, President Trump's, uh, uh, the way in which the Mueller report characterizes President Trump. Uh, Let's take a a peek at President Trump himself, who put out an interesting tweet uh, last night. No collusion, no obstruction um, for the uh, haters and the radical left Democrats. Game over. He's using the uh, Game of Thrones typeface, Amy Steigerwald doing his best Daenerys Targanian. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, he is trying to summarize what is a very long and detailed report for the layperson.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jim, let's talk about it. We, If anybody who's been paying attention to CNN, to Fox, to MSNBC has heard this uh, nonstop. So let's talk about it specifically, if we can, in terms of reaction here in Georgia. I mean, it's no surprise that it's broken down on partisan lines. Let me just give you a couple of the statements that have been made and then uh, start a conversation, and I'll come to you first, Jim. Doug Collins, and you should point this out, Jim, probably the most important Republican in Georgia in terms of the uh, Mueller report, because he is now... President Trump's number one defender on Capitol Hill in many ways.
3: Well, he and he, he, and Lindsey Graham. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Doug Collins is the ranking Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, but but you can see you can see the talking points are penetrating, and everybody's uh, the everyone on the Republican side is is are they're, they're 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 getting in line, and they're 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 using the same phrases. I, uh, uh, David Perdue had something on Facebook. Uh, uh, you know, no collusion, no no uh, corruption. No obstruction. obstruction. No obstruction.
1: Yeah. There we go. Collins said, and that's exactly right. Collins uh, tweeted, no collusion, no obstruction, uh, no uh, opinion on sitting presidents considered in these determinations, no executive privilege asserted, no redactions proposed or made by anyone outside the Department of Justice. No one outside DOJ viewed the unredacted uh, report. No cover-up when there's nothing to uh, cover up. So you're right. There's a talking point theme there. Uh, Republican Congressman Rick Allen uh, said the document shows us what we already know. There was no, in all caps, Russian collusion in our 2016 presidential election. So let's talk first about the Republican Reaction to all this. There's nothing surprising about the fact that the Republicans in the Georgia delegation at least rallied around. No, no, the no. Number
3: one, you can't you can't be against Trump and 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 win your primary anymore. So everybody understands that. I think if I had to give a, a, a very a, a, a very quick summation, I would say it was good enough for Donald Trump to say he 's he's, he's freed of collusion, of course that wasn 't the, the 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 charge that anybody was actually looking for, but was it was also good enough for Democrats that they can they can they can keep they can keep chugging along with their investigation and and push this thing into the two thousand and twenty campaign which you've and you 've already seen those lines jump up
1: you know Heath, that 's a really good point for for people who are weary of all of this, and there are many people, whether they are republicans or Democrats who are just tired of the back and forth on this. Anyone who was under the uh, faulty illusion that the release of the report would finally bring this to a rest was way off base. This is going to go on, as Jim says, through the 2020 election.
2: Absolutely. It didn't bring anything mm. to conclusion from a partisan political standpoint. I do think if you go back to the 2020 election and you look at the independent voters, which are a small percentage of the total electorate, though, they are tired of this. And, and uh, I think that both parties have risk of how they overplay their hand on it. I do think that it's a huge vindication for the president from a political standpoint. Let's put aside whether it's good news that we weren't colluding with the Russians, right? I think that's good for the country. But uh, the Democrats now have interesting uh, talking points. I know we'll get those that in a second. But Republicans are absolutely embracing this as a total vindication for the president. And it does allow them to go on and talk about other things. Our Democratic friends are a little bit split on this. I'm not so sure, Jim, this is a great uh, issue for the Democrats to run on in 2020. And you're seeing a little bit of division between the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and then the rank-and-file Democrats who are already calling for impeachment over this. So I think that's a. It's it's a tough for both sides to keep this going,
1: uh, Amir. So there are some devastating uh, findings in this report that p- paint a picture of a president who was in fact doing everything he could to stop the investigation, uh, and was dissuaded from that uh, by people like his former counsel Don McGahn, who simply said, "You cannot." Fu- Ask me to fire Robert Mueller. I won't do it. Uh, it, And any number of instances that we see in the report in which the president um, was stopped from pursuing uh, steps that may very well have, in fact, put him in greater jeopardy for obstruction of justice. So he says it's all partisan. Um, I I wonder how you react to that when the report suggests behavior that both Republicans and Democrats might be able to see as meaningful if it weren't for the partisan lens.
4: Yeah, I think one, it's important to note um, that the report said he did. Well, it does not conclude that he committed a crime. It also does not exonerate him either. And which leads to this, I think, division of the Democratic Party um, is do you kind of chase that uh, that dog down the path? Or do you step back and say, is this really what we should be spending our time on? People are hungry for policy and solutions. Mm -hmm. I I don't think the report tells us anything new. Most people, and I'll be a little bit partisan here, It's a president who lies, his people lie. I think at every step he's undermined traditional uh, democratic norms. Um, and he invited a foreign government to try and influence an election, which I think Republicans and Democrats alike are, should be and are uncomfortable with. Uh, but I think Democrats would be wise not to focus on this report, to move on from it. Uh, I think the election in, in 2020 is uh, will be the reckoning or not for President Trump. Uh, And I think Democrats, if they're going to win in 2020, need to focus on issues and, and the path forward and the vision for the country.
1: Let Amy, uh, let me bring you in here, and as I do, let me read you just some of the things that Democrats have said in response to the investigation. Teresa Tomlinson, a former panelist on the show until she announced she was forming an exploratory committee to run for the U.S. Senate, said, transparency and accountability <clears throat> excuse me, are essential to our democracy and the political discomfort or inconvenience of this controversy cannot dissuade our election Elected officials from promptly completing their constitutional duty. Now, she may be thinking that the constitutional duty is for the Democrats in the House to, in fact, launch an impeachment investigation and move forward in 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 that way. We don't know that for a fact, but but she seems to be suggesting that mm-hmm. they do have an oversight role here of one sort or another. Um, but Amir makes an interesting point. You know, sometimes one of the smartest things you can do in politics is to, is to let you, the opposition, when they're uh, experiencing trouble and they're kind of on the ropes, let them hang themselves, stay out of their way. But that's not going to happen here.
0: I don't think so. And I think some of the problem is that it's not only sort of this political question, but it is, in fact, a very real question about whether or not constitutional norms were violated, whether or not there were actions that were taken that were an abuse of power. Um, And at least in, I think, a lot of the legal community, sort of volume two of the report, because, of course, there's volume one, volume two, volume one focused on the question of uh, Russian collusion And volume two focused on the question of obstruction. And volume two was, to to many people, and I'll admit that this is how I read it as well in the beginning, was sort of laying out that the person who's supposed to be making this decision is Congress. And there was a lot of reference to Congress's authority to be able to check uh, through separation of powers, about looking to uh, concerns of where there's abuse. And so it was uh, explained as we're going to lay out the evidence We're going to preserve the record. And here you go, Congress, do with it what you want. And so I think that that's where the question comes that is very difficult of how is there a way for us to have a real discussion about what's contained in the report without being blinded by sort of our partisan allegiances and, oh, it's about this person, oh, it's about that person, and instead have a discussion of, well, what if it was a member of the other party, right? How would we be reading this and would we be having the same reaction and say, oh, my goodness, right, this is not okay? or would we say these are maybe behaviors that we're not bothered
3: and, and, by it. And, 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 and to, to that point, there, there, part of me says that, that volume two is getting far too much attention. And we should be really concentrating on volume So
1: volume one. two is the section that deals with whether the president uh, was obstructing justice. Mm-hmm. Volume one deals with what has commonly uh, come to be called collusion, but which Robert Mueller makes clear is not a legal Term, he was looking at something quite different from right. so-called collusion.
3: Exactly. But you had, uh, and 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 this this is is an exoneration of the New York Times. But you had a you have paragraphs in there in which Rick Gates, partner of Paul Manafort, who was the campaign manager for the Trump campaign. Quoted as saying that Paul Manafort sat in that famous cigar store, the uh, the cigar restaurant, and and handed over polling data, talked strategy and messaging with a member known to be have connections to Russian security. No one is talking about that.
0: Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, it also very clearly says, right, which is something that I would assume that we could have sort of bipartisan agreement on that we need to address that Russia interfered in the election. Right, that forgetting even like whether or not anybody on U.S. soil was helping out, there was in fact an attempt by a foreign government to do that. And what does go to the 2020 election is are we taking steps to prevent that from happening again? And that's the part that's not really
1: clear. Heath, I want to get to on the more Georgia sides of this, but go ahead. You want to respond to what you're hearing.
2: I think there are a couple of things legally. Number one, Mm -hmm. within the legal theory, there's a big question as to whether or not you can really obstruct justice if the underlying crime was not committed right and so as a lawyer it bothers me that in politics we're now focusing all this on obstruction of justice when the report is very clear that the underlying crime did not happen they had plenty of data plenty of resources there's no allegation that the president or anybody around him obstructed their ability to determine the underlying crime that's that should be offensive to all of us as americans that's what we call the federal prosecutorial trap we're not going we can't prove you guilty on the underlying crime we're going to trap you into some little trick of lawyers and i think that's something we got to be very careful about number two in the volume two what Mueller was pointing out is that the statute that gives congress the authority to be a balance on the executive branch was not strong enough for them to come to a conclusion and so it's really not it's not inviting congress to come in and file obstruction it's basically saying you need to change the law if you want to and i think the president's actually been brilliant about saying he doesn't want this to happen to himself anymore or any other president, Republican or Well, Democrat. you know, again, I, that's a bothersome to me. And I didn't like what, what some of our Republican friends tried to do to Clinton or to uh, to Obama. So I think we got to ask that.
1: question. All right. Here's the OK. So I keep saying I'd like to talk about how Georgians are reacting right. to this. But let's just say you're a Georgian reacting to this. Right. And let me ask you. And then I want and then, Amir, you should jump in here. You. The behavior of the president, as described in this report, it strikes me that Republicans, Democrats, independents, uh, some of the way that Mueller describes the president trying to stop the investigation, uh, behaviors that he apparently exhibited when he first learned Mueller was appointed since the end of my presidency, I am effed. you can't be happy. And clearly the president isn't happy either right. because throughout the day after the report being public, his Twitter is lighting up with rage about what the report says about him.
2: Well, I think, number one, Donald Trump likes this, right? This is the scrum. This is the match. He likes to be able to use the Game of Thrones. He's actually changing the game of politics in real time. We've never seen a president take yeah, something. But, but, but how but, do you feel but about it? Look, I mean, I think that it exposes that the president is a, is a very Feisty uh, guy. I think that it exposes some of his personal moral flaws, all of which we've known, which the American people knew when they elected him in, in 2016. So I don't, I don't think it paints him as the kind of person that I invite my children to look up to. But I don't think it paints him to be someone who deserved Ar- this two-year, Ar- uh, you know.
1: Okay. So ravages. Amir, I, I heard some man on the street uh, mm. uh, sound bites today on one of the cable networks, and. I heard one person particularly who could very wasn't a Georgian, but it strikes me could just as well have been a Republican in Georgia said, and I'm almost quoting verbatim. I think I think he's a despicable person. Agreed. But I believe he's doing a good job for the country, and I'll elect him again. And that brings us closer to home in as the question becomes, do we think this is going to have an impact? on his reelection chances here in Georgia and on people like David Perdue who have tied themselves at the hip to uh, President Trump.
4: Yeah, I I think it it has an impact on his electability in Georgia to the extent the Democrats focus on it. I I think uh, the average voter in Georgia, Republican or Democrat, um, especially once we get into next year, this is going to be well in the rearview mirror and uh, Democrats are going to beat Donald Trump uh, with a, Uh, a vision for the future and a set of policies that address the issues that people are grappling with. And I think the more you focus on this report, the more you drum up the Republican base, uh, the more it it kind of tires people of politics because you're not not offering solutions. Uh, And I think there's plenty of Democratic presidential candidates who see that, and I hope we kind of Take that the higher road and leave the report behind us and move forward.
1: Jim, here's what Purdue said on Facebook. 2 years and millions of taxpayer dollars have been spent on and he calls it a wild goose chase. However, Democrats are still pushing a false narrative. They only want to investigate. They do not want to legislate. It's time to move on. No collusion, no obstruction. There are those talking points. No kidding. Here he is, Purdue once again saying Trump's my man, and he's got to face election next year. Right, he does. And, and, but, but,
3: but to Amir's point, it may not be the, the Democrats who are talking impeachment uh, come this time next year. Because uh, we saw this, we saw this happen at, at the close of of, of eighteen, at the eighteen election cycle, where Republicans were the ones who were raising impeachment as a as a as as as, a, uh, as, as kind of a, a foreboding note to turn out the base, and you could easily you could, you could easily take Trump's reelection and and convert that into a to, to an impeachment discussion.
2: That's right. And I think I think on the Republican side, I mean, not trying to help my Democratic friends, but (laughs) I think that hearing Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, the leaders of the Democratic Party in the House, say impeachment's off the table, yet hearing. Nadler and all the other Democrats say no, and the presidential candidates for Democrats all saying no, impeachment's got to be on the table. They have the same problem we as Republicans have. The base is demanding impeachment. Leadership has seen the polling numbers and knows it's not going to help sell the agenda for the Democratic Party. And I think it's interesting. Stacey Abrams has been vocal. Uh, uh, Teresa Tomlinson has been vocal. But Lucy McBath and some of the others that are in really close districts that don't feel as emboldened. I think they're being a little quieter because they're trying to well,
3: figure out how to Well, all right. So let's let, let's But she's also on the Judiciary Committee,
1: correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was yeah, her in right. an interesting position, I think it, politically. It, I do think it's interesting, Keith, you do make a point. What McBath said uh, is on her tweet is I'm still reviewing the report. That seems to be the perfect way to frame all this. Right. But then she says, I'm deeply troubled about the findings that the president and his associates put their own personal and political interests above the interests of the American people and our democratic institutions. And she had a very—she went on and had a much longer uh, statement. So she's sort of threading the needle, I suppose you could say, Amy. But she's making a fairly firm statement that she is offended mm-hmm. by the president's uh, behavior as it manifested in the report.
0: Well, I think the, some of the problem is, right, I mean, if we sort of put it in a political lens, is that there's a lot of scholarly literature that says it's about framing. It's about how it is that you pitch and mm-hmm. using a frame which people respond to. And the president is excellent about framing the narrative, right? No hoax, no collusion, right? This didn't happen. These talking points have been repeated since the beginning, right? It was never, let's do the investigation. I'm, right, you're not going to find anything. Let's get it done. Let's be done with it. We can put it behind us. Instead, it was... This is a hoax. Why are we continuing to do this? And it's a framing that is easy for people to latch on to, to be able to take. And I think one of the other issues is that it's been very difficult for the Democrats to come up with an alternative framing that puts it in, right, sometimes the longer, right, we should slow down, we should wait, we should read it, we should see what it is. And in many ways, right, it's also if what you wanted was a clear thing, right? That's definitely not what the Mueller report gave you, right? The Mueller report starts out and says on the question of obstruction, well, we actually can't answer this anyways, because OLC says we can't indict the president. So we're going to give you some info and then do with it what you want. Again, framing that is very difficult. It is easy, though, to latch on to the bottom line, which is that the president was not indicted for
1: obstruction. Let me bring this back to David Perdue, Jim, if I may. So, I get it. A Lucy McBath in the 6th District, as Heath points out, there's, you know, it's still not clear that Mm -hmm. it's a blue district. She's going to face significant efforts to uh, oust, oust her from office. In most of the Republican-controlled congressional seats uh, here, they're they're safe. Nothing's going to change. But David Perdue has to run statewide. He has to run statewide. President Trump is at 40 percent, according to your last polling of approval ratings. And I don't. I will be stunned if next week we see a polling that shows that he hasn't either remained at the same point, despite what he claims is exoneration or lost a little ground at least. Right,
3: right. And you have to remember that the the, the 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 thing that separates David <clears throat> Purdue from Brian Kemp right now are the northern suburbs yeah. of metro Atlanta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 in that way it's I think it's very interesting. I think David Purdue and Karen Handel are kind of tied together. I mean I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to I, I don't want uh, to diss uh, Brandon Beach who's also in the primary in the Republican primary and 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 those two have to come head to head but if if Karen Handel is going to have a a, a rematch with Lucy McBath uh, the the rematch that she wants then she's going to have to answer the the Trump question just like David Perdue is is going to. And I I think one might follow the lead of the other in that
2: case. And I might frame it just a little bit differently, Bill. I do think that David Perdue's tweet there is a little bit of, I'm glad this is over. I'm already wed to him, so I'm not. I'm not going to disown him, which would be a mistake for him to do for yeah, the base, I, I, I mean, right? Right. But thank goodness, it does kind of come to this conclusion that there was no collusion, right? And now, hopefully, we as Republicans, at least, even though Democrats aren't going to let us do it, are going to move away from having to talk about it all the time. And we do have a bumper sticker, right? Then mm-hmm. this is where Trump's brilliance shines through: no collusion, no, no, no obstruction. Uh-huh. And then he use Game of Thrones, and so now we have the producer of Game of Thrones entering yeah. the debate nationally, and nobody. <laughs> He's talking about anything else but Donald Trump. Yeah, I, would,
4: I would stop short of saying the Democrats are the ones hanging on to this conversation. The, the <laughs> president's tweeting about it you know, right oh now. My, the yeah, president's, president's Twitter go-
1: stream yeah. today has been breathtaking yeah. in its rage against the report.
4: Yeah. I mean, look, he's his own worst enemy. And I, this is my I take. I, I think uh, he will win or lose. Um, I mean, all of his flaws are on the table. His shortcomings are on the table. Everyone knows what they are. Uh, the path to beating him is not through this report. It's through charting a different path and putting up a different type of person uh, to run the highest office in the land. And so, I'd, um, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think Democrats would be wise to stay away from impeachment, move away from the report and articulate a vision for the country.
1: All right, let's do this. Um, let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, let's change the subject uh, this week. Uh, not one, but two Democratic presidential candidates were in Atlanta. Let's talk about their messaging as they came into town because, in fact, they uh, talked about very specific Georgia issues. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
5: Welcome to GPB's Stealth Drive, an innovative way of fundraising on the air this spring. It's all about giving you more programming and less fundraising. Support GPB now at 800-222-4788 or gpb.org and choose from a variety of great thank you gifts, including tickets to see best-selling author and humorist David Sedaris before they go on sale to the public. David Sedaris will be at the Fox Theater in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 20th, and the Classic Center in Athens on Wednesday, December 4th. For a limited time only, with your credit card contribution of $300, select a pair of tickets to An Evening with David Sedaris in either Atlanta or Athens as your thank you gift. You'll also join us for GPB's exclusive pre-show reception. Don't wait. Call 800-222-4788 now or give online at gpb.org. And thanks.
1: Uh, Jim Galloway, Cory Booker. Uh, Democratic candidate for president was in town uh, this past week, and um, he seems to be picking up a theme, not surprisingly, that other Democratic candidates who've come in have picked up on. And that's uh, their belief in that there's been a huge voter suppression effort that elected Brian Kemp, governor, calling as he did for uh, uh, more transparency, for an investigation of Brian Kemp as secretary of state. Uh, this is a the theme that Democratic—and Andrew Yang, the uh, candidate who people don't know a whole lot about it at this point, but he's raised enough money, apparently, that he'll actually be the in the debate. an Yeah. Yep. He, too, raising these issues of voter suppression— and a need for more transparency and to, and to have, uh, in, in Booker's case, automatic voter registration. Well,
3: I, I think this is just a remarkable show of how Stacey Abrams has set the conversation, at least in Georgia, and yeah. probably throughout the South, for, yeah. for these
1: presidential candidates as they come through here. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. No, Amy. I think
0: it's exactly right. And I think it's also, you know, pulling off of measures that we've seen um, in other places as well, right? Especially with uh, felon disenfranchisement, right? So the idea that once you're done, either while you're still in prison or after you finish your, ser- finish your sentence, are you allowed to get your voting rights back? And also real questions about how do we allow people to not only register to vote, but actually vote itself. So we've seen sort of movements on the West Coast towards vote by mail. And that's certainly one of the things also that Booker was talking about.
1: Um, Amir, it's not—it is certainly, as Jim points out, the way Stacey Abrams has gotten her message across, but it's also the way the national media covered the 2018 elections here in Georgia. And we've said this before on our show, but the national media, the New York Times, Washington Post, the the, the major national newspapers, and, and the cable news, the more liberal cable news networks, they didn't have any question in their minds, in their coverage, that there was a uh, vast voter suppression. Um, the way we looked at it on the ground here was we said over and over again, we need to see a little bit more evidence. But that became part of the national narrative, and now the presidential candidates are bringing it into Georgia with them.
4: Yeah, l- yes. Um, I think the national narrative, uh, it, it, it's a compelling one, right? It, it, Sells newspapers. It may play into a broader narrative of things in the South are not as they should be. Uh, but there was, in fact, voter suppression here. I mean, you have uh, precincts in rural counties getting yeah. closed that shouldn't be getting closed. You have people getting purged from the voter rolls. Um, you know, Amy brings up a great point: is that you look at states that allow vote by mail, voter participation is is incredibly high, higher than anywhere else in the country. And we need to be looking at ways to expand access to the polls for everyone who's legal to vote. Uh, and we don't. We're doing the opposite. And it comes across as a partisan attempt to, to maintain power. And uh, I think as we think about um, access to, to voting, um, we need to be very honest about the fact that uh, we are not being as, as fair and open as we should be. Um, but, you know, the national versus local narrative, uh, while it may be exaggerated at the national level, um,
1: we saw issues yeah. here too we just were a little bit more careful in making decisions a lot of it was based on the fact that kemp didn't recuse himself from the election as secretary of state go ahead and, and i want to talk
2: about this right i think this is a real concern for us in the state of georgia and this show's done a good job of talking about the facts around this but there's no question there's a very discouraging national narrative going around that not, that georgia was suppressing votes in 2018 like we were in the 1950s or 1960s and the new york times the washington post and these other newspapers were glad to write that narrative without writing the story we had historic turnout we had the largest voter participation in the state's history Stacey abrams got more votes than any other democrat in history more so than hillary clinton we had the highest african-american turnout the highest hispanic turnout there was no what we would view legal as voter suppression however you can make these arguments about whether we should have mail-in ballots or make it easier to register but the facts are there's not one single person who's been able to come forward and testify in a court of law that they were denied the right to well, vote. Well, Okay, That's the narrative that's out there, if, and I think it's mm-hmm. irresponsible, and it makes us look bad.
3: If I could jump in here. Number one, the, 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 the one thing that the national media really just... It, it, couldn't wrap its head around is that we have a secretary of state who is formally in charge of of statewide elections but we have 159 counties Mm -hmm. all with election officials that also operate independently however now to your point that there was no evidence if you go to, if you look at HB 318, which was the, the, the bill that, was, that authorizes the purchase of voting machines, right. it, ha- it incorporates in, into, the, into the, that language the contents of five Democratic bills targeting the problems that Stacey Abrams uh, pointed out, like exact match. Those were, those were Republican admissions that she had her point. Yeah. during that campaign uh, and again
2: but I think we've made that point all along right there's no coverage of the fact that republicans said so these are good ideas It didn't prevent anybody right. from getting a chance to vote right. in 2018 well,
0: that's, the only thing with that is cuz there were a number of federal courts that had to step in right yeah. because we had issues with right ballots that were being rejected right i mean again it was focused in counties it wasn't
2: statewide because of primarily the way that counties we have it. that are controlled by the democratic party in georgia
1: <laughs> all right i don't want to relitigate the 2018 election i i raised that (laughs) largely to say presidential candidates are paying attention and they're bringing that issue to the state, not maybe to win some George votes, but they see that as a... a, a, It's kind of to your point, Amir, that the the state is being used to attract voters across the country, and to his point, it doesn't make us look so good. But it's
3: almost an entry fee if you're a presidential candidate. Well,
1: Uh, as is both both Booker and uh, Yang, when they came in, Uh, Talked about the uh, heartbeat abortion bill as an example of the direction that Republicans are taking the country. Now, that, Heath, strikes me. Here in Georgia, I thought the AJC polling on this was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, Jim, but I think 49% of the people were surveyed said they believe uh, that abortion should remain legal. Well, no, no. Actually, seventy percent. Oh, seventy percent said 70% were, to be were, legal. Were were, were, uh, were uh, 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 against doing away with Roe v. Wade. I'm sorry, but forty nine percent didn't have a real problem with the heartbeat bill, right. which is it a was, bizarre. It was, it
3: was. It was split right down That's the middle. That's right.
1: Which is really uh, hard to understand. But Heath, right. this is an issue that I would think Democrats are going to win some votes on. If you're if you're Cory Booker. You can make something out of this.
2: There's no question that Democrats are going to use this as an issue. I think there's a question in 2020, is there any other issue on any ballot other than Donald Trump for Democrats, right? So to me, this is a hook issue like others might be. However, I think I've said it on the show, and I think I've heard a lot of Republicans say this. You can agree from a public policy standpoint, theologically, from a philosophical standpoint, and from a public policy standpoint, that the heartbeat bill has some scientific legitimacy to concern. And And by the way, however, politically, Uh, Republicans have to acknowledge that abortion's not been a good issue for them with independent swing women in the state of Georgia or any other suburb in America. And so I think that's the politics of it.
1: Amy, if you come, if you're a Democrat running for president and you come to any of the few states out there now, Texas being another one that have these heartbeat bills, uh, you can make some mileage out of this in your campaigns by running against it
0: you most decidedly can. I mean, it's an issue which not only motivates right Republican base, but it also very much so motivates the Democratic base. And it's also one where it sort of it, it, it helps to, that is one where, again, the messaging, there's a sort of clear link that it can sort of feed into a larger narrative about wanting to, right, stop people from uh, gaining in their careers, right? It really sort of ties into sort of broader arguments about how it is that women are doing in obtaining uh, both uh, jobs and, and moving up the ladder. It ties into questions mm-hmm. about equal pay. Um, and it also sort of ties into this sort of uh, visual that we're dealing with now, both, I think, in Georgia and more nationally, that the Republican Party, especially elected officials in the Republican Party, are much more white and male than they have been in past years. And so, again, sort of back to that picture that we saw of Renee Unterman with her 34 right. male colleagues behind her, it really sort of feeds into this and in this question of where do where do Women and where do minorities fit into the Republican Party? Uh,
3: and and I, Bill, I think one thing we need to do is recognize kind of the shift this is within the Democratic Party. Again, t- 2018 was the first time, probably in two decades, where we, we where we saw abortion. Become a, a a general election issue for Democrats, yeah. uh, and and uh, I mean we have moved so far away from the Clinton years where uh, where abortion was spoken of as something should, that should be legal and rare.
1: Amir, uh, State Senator Nakeem Williams, now the chair of the Democratic Party uh, is uh, here in Georgia, is listening, as she often does, to the show. She sent this message to us. Uh, Language—this is something you'll appreciate, Amy, but, Amir, language and messaging matters. HB 481 is an abortion ban, and we need to call it what it is. So we, we've been saying it all but outlaws abortion, yeah. which is, of course— Correct. But she suggests that it is a ban. So I just thought we'd bring that.
4: Look, it is. Uh, if I think what's what's has Amy touched on this. Um, this is an extreme proposal. It's kind of Republicans who backing this or grasping at straws as a way to kind of maintain some sort of narrative as the this, the state shifts to the middle and women are more active in politics. Uh, frankly, women are the only people we should be asking this question of, and women in Georgia don't want to see this happen, and they're the ones who should be making this decision, and uh, I think we've, there's, this is enormous overreach by Republicans, and uh, the chickens will come home to roost next
1: All week. right. Let's uh, move on to another subject. We, well, I'll just close it by saying, Jim, we're only beginning to see a stream of Democratic presidential candidates who will come into this state in the months ahead. And certainly once we get Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, to set an actual date for the primary, We'll really start seeing them come in uh, as 2020 begins for right, sure. Right, right.
3: It's hard to it's hard to prioritize if you're a presidential candidate. Yeah, you don't, know, you don't know, know what the, the calendar
1: results. is. Yeah. All right. Well, we you know we need to ask, ask Raffensburger why they haven't put that date on the let's calendar. let him on the show. All right. We'll do that. I think that's a good idea. Let's move on. Uh, just let's talk just a little about campaign fundraising. We just came to the end of a uh, fundraising cycle, and uh, as you all pointed out in the Insider. There's already been millions of dollars raised. David Perdue, uh, uh, the candidates, both Democrats and Republicans, in the 6th and 7th congressional districts. Uh, this state's going to be bringing a lot of money in, not necessarily just from Georgians, but from outside. Lucy McBath uh, shows first quarter fundraising of uh, $481,000. 238. Not bad, considering she jumped in toward the end of the cycle. Brandon Beach... Not doing quite as well, Jim. You mentioned that we shouldn't discount him, but he's well, not he, quite he, on he, fire he, yet. He did have he did have he had a session. a session. He couldn't raise money during a session in the seventh district. Carolyn Bordeaux. These are the Democrats, of course. Yeah. Uh, she's done very well. She did well last time when she uh, was the Democratic candidate in there. And as you can see, the other two candidates not in such great shape, but. The money—do uh, we have David Perdue, I think, as well on this. Um, Perdue has raised, what, two? He uh, raised— t-
3: 2.5, I think, in the quarter yeah. and has $4 million on hand. Yeah, he and raised— That, that number becomes lot. very important. Oh, okay, uh, 1.7 yeah.
1: in the yeah. quarter. Okay, why but is that number become important?
3: Because uh, because every day that, that Democrats in Georgia don't have a U.S. Senate candidate mm-hmm. is a day that they are not raising money yeah. to match mm-hmm.
1: that. I Amir, mean, that is so true. I mean, we are waiting and what Teresa Tomlinson is we mentioned earlier, she's got her exploratory committee going, but she is in this awkward place where she's gotta say, I'm running for Senate unless Dacey Abrams jumps in. You Democrats have got to be getting more and more frustrated almost by the day at this point.
4: Well look, I, I think um, there's plenty of time here, but is the, longer, there the longer Stacey Abrams uh, does not make a decision, uh, the more it helps David Perdue, uh, to, to Jim's point. And I think uh, Theresa um, can and, and if is the only candidate will be a very formidable op- formidable opposition to Senator Perdue. Um, but people are still waiting to see what Stacey's going to do. And I, like, she's going to galvanize the party and Georgians and um, in a remarkable way if she jumps in. But she's kind of hit the pause button. And so Democrats are, I think, getting a bit antsy. Um,
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you're not here
1: as a Democrat. so yeah, we? I, I'm, I'm, I'm here as that. I mean, but
0: when it, when it looks at fundraising, I mean, every day, I mean, as Jim said, every day that you're not raising money and also every day that you're not campaigning is one less day that you get to raise money and to campaign and it allow means that the sort of not only is there no one currently running against Purdue, but it also means the party has really sort of stopped its efforts as well, right? It's kind of ignoring the race until it gets well, to that
1: because it's not sure what to do. That is so important, Jim. If Abrams decides to get in a race, she can raise un she can raise extraordinary amounts of money very quickly. But if she doesn't, uh, a Teresa Tomlinson... um going to uh, need some help. Anybody else who jumps in... Rafael it's gonna, Warnock. Uh, it's going to be harder... Right. Yeah. Uh, for them to race it. Uh, it'll be interesting. Well, that's, All right. Bill, that's Go the ahead. point
2: I was going to make is that I mean, I, I would encourage Stacey to stay on her uh, book tour around the country um, and, and keep this going uh, if I were on David Perdue's staff, right? Because if she gives in, it's probably not a big deal. But if she doesn't get in, she, it's, just, it's a terrible disservice to the other candidates, whether that's Teresa Tomlinson or Raphael Warnock or any of the other folks who've thought about running. I mean, I hear Jen Jordan's name now being, you know, made around as a as serious candidate. These folks have no name recognition. And, and, no, and no money, and you've got to have that in order to be a credible right.
1: challenge. Uh, We've got to take a break, but the point to be made, I think, especially about the 6th and 7th congressional uh, fundraising so far, is that, once again, those two districts are going to be mm-hmm. big, hotly contested races, and there's going to be a lot of money pouring in to, uh, to those uh, districts as the election moves forward. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. Back with more Political Rewind in just a minute. This spring here at GPB, our goal is to cover the costs of the programs you love and hopefully eliminate the spring fun drive. How? Well, instead of cutting into the programs you listen to on GPB, like we do during a traditional fun drive, you'll hear short reminders like this one. We're calling it GPB's Stealth Drive. Hi, I'm Tom Barclay, GPB's Radio Operations Manager. People who listen just
3: like you're doing right now provide the single most important and reliable funding
1: for everything you hear on GPB. So right now, we're counting on your support. So while you're thinking about it, call 800-222-4788, 800-222-4788, or donate online at gpb.org. Because public radio matters to you, do it now, and thank you so much. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Jim, the the, uh, AJC uh, carried a story on the front page of the paper this past week, another story about David Ralston and the uh, delays, the continuances he has asked for. Uh, in dealing with clients of his based on his uh, duties as Speaker of the House down at the Capitol. Now, there was no really new information about the, the facts of his continuances, but what was surprising, what I think put it on the front page, was the enumeration. More than 900 times he has asked for continuances in 266 cases. And we should say these figures come from an independent investigator. Right, a private investigator allied with, in some fashion, we don't
3: know how, with, uh, with, uh, with the dissidents in the, in the House Republicans. The people who want oh, Ralston right.
1: out. So right. your reporters, as of the publication, had not been able to independently verify it. But the reason it's worth talking about is it makes clear to us that, despite the fact that Ralston tried to take some steps to put this completely behind him, there is going to be an effort to keep it alive. Right, right, it, at least to keep it
3: alive, <laughs> at least probably through, through next year's prime. Sure. And it, it, it does paint a picture of a practice that could be built around delay, uh, de- delay of the justice system.
2: Well, as an attorney, I do want to jump in here because I've talked to a number of my Democratic friends on this. i got some real concerns about these numbers. We're talking about 266 cases. That's an average. No, of, we're to- yeah, yeah, 266 cases, clients.
1: Yeah, cases, 900
2: continuances. Right, which is an average of just over three continuances per case. Anybody who's engaged in a criminal mm. uh, defense practice, there are cases that our firm has had with no legislators in our firm where we've had as many as 20 and 25 continuances. And so I think that we have to put these numbers into context right you know small town lawyers across rural georgia have continuances all the time the question is right uh, in what context was this i don't think these numbers are outside the norm i do think it's legitimate political fodder and the and the speaker's going to have to deal with it for a long period of time but i don't think we need to run lawyers out of the legislature because they're doing things that are pretty normal in their and in actually,
3: their and the actually that's that's one one point that hasn't been explored is mm-hmm. Is taking a look at other lawyers, at others in 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 the, who serve in the yeah, House and Senate. That's,
1: yeah, I think that's right. And, and so, but here's what I think is interesting about this, Amir. At a time when Democrats are beginning to take a hold in the in the state legislature, beginning to add seats, we think that in 2020, they're I mean, we know they're making a big push to add even more Democrats in the House, particularly. Uh, Here's a speaker who is facing, again, uh, facing some real strong criticism in efforts to get him out of there uh, by people within his own party. It's a dynamic that's got to be troubling to the Republicans in that body.
4: That's okay. Uh, <laughs> not- <laughs> Look, I I think there's two conversations here. One is whether he should remain Speaker of the House, and that's a question for the Republican caucus. The second is a question of whether he should be in office at all, and that's a question for the voters of Blue Ridge and surrounds. And I think Democrats are are wise to let that conversation play out on its own and and focus on their own seats and races and uh, articulating the the vision for Georgia.
1: Yeah, I assume Ralston, uh, Ralston could be primaried. Uh, Mm -hmm. certainly if this continues to gain steam, whether he loses or he's been primary before and it hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. But he's we're not likely to see that seat suddenly become Democratic. It's just when the leadership, the Republican leadership of the House is facing some close Mm -hmm. scrutiny at a time when Democrats are trying to establish more power there. It's a dynamic that has got to be troubling, as I said to Amir.
0: It is. And I mean, it's also one that makes it more difficult, right, for Speaker Ralston to keep his caucus together when he's trying to lead the House. It makes it more difficult to just lead the House on a day-to-day basis because, right, you need the Speaker, right, you need everyone, in fact, right, to be playing along. I mean, the Georgia House has a lot more collegiality than people realize. They actually work very well together across the aisles, right? Jen Jordan is one of the Mm chair people, right, of one of the committees. So, I mean, there are in fact it's not just that they're all minority dominated in the senate yeah, she's in the right. Senate, but I think Same there's a couple, concept. I think, in the...
3: Scott Holcomb and the Speaker have a good, right. good, a good relationship
5: in the House. Yes,
0: and so I think one of the things that's in there is that also sort of makes that difficult is how that's going to be. And so when you start to have this bubbling up in the middle of the Republican caucus, right, I mean, I think what Democrats are doing are staying out of the way and saying, well, we're, we're going to let you all do this and, and figure it out. But it, it's going to need to either be shut down or it's going to have to be addressed.
2: You know, it, it's... Go ahead. I was going to say, so my message to my Republican clients and friends is a lot of them have never seen been in the minority right that are in that house of yeah. representatives bill you're, yeah. you're you're making great to give it, good advice to republicans which is be careful what you wish for because mm-hmm. uh, the democrats could uh you know take back the house or the senate in the next two or three cycles it's, it's, it's a, particularly with a lot of republican infighting
3: right it is yeah. a it is a 15 seat margin right now yeah. and yeah. it is extremely important for democrats to do well in 2020 because they won't have the governor's mansion and the only way they can get a seat at the table when redistricting comes around yep. is to make themselves invaluable or or to rule the House or make them so crucial that they can't be ignored.
1: Well, you know, it strikes me there's another thing to consider here, Jim, and that's that um, d- if Democrats are taking joy in this, uh, yes, they'd like to win the majority, and certainly that is a big, big goal. But if they can't, David Ralston has been a fair-minded uh uh, speaker who has been the guy, the, the cop who has stopped in many cases, some p- particularly pernicious legislation from uh, passing legislation the Democrats certainly have not liked. So, I mean, he's been a force there uh, uh, that Democrats have been a- happy with. Now, the abortion bill happens to be an exception to that, and, and it's a strong bus- one. The, the
3: business community too. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so don't for, don't for, don't forget that. But I mean, I think you have House Democrats playing playing a a very long game that looks that looks to the history of North Carolina where where you had some deal making going on between between your your uh, the the your ma- the majority of republicans and
1: a a, a, a a piece of the democrats all right let's move on uh jim 6 years ago nathan deal who early in his tenure as governor uh took on some immigration issues he he apparently felt a need—I I won't doubt his sincerity, but he was also playing strongly to his anti-immigrant base, passed mm-hmm. some legislation that was uh, uh, in some harmful in many ways to undocumented residents of Georgia. But he also created the Immigration Enforcement Review Board. We, we struggled for six years to figure out exactly what that board was supposed to it be was, all about.
3: It was, <laughs> it was designed to keep a watch on local governments yeah. and, and, <laughs> and make sure they adhere to state law regarding employment of illegal immigrants.
1: OK. And the Immigration Board, uh, which had appointments from the speaker, from the lieutenant governor, from the governor, uh, had uh, 20 cases brought to before it in six years, 19 of them from D.A. King, King. one of the most, Heath, uh, what's the word I want to use here? Aggressive. One of the most aggressive anti-immigrant voices in the state of Georgia.
2: No, no question. And look, uh, as a Republican, uh, D.A. King is a great example of how one member of the grassroots organization can get outsized influence within a political party or within a caucus. And whether it's because of some local newspapers or whether it was because he grabbed onto an issue that clearly was a wedge issue in primaries. I'm not a big fan of D.A. King. I'll be real honest about that and don't think Republicans should have been <laughs> listening to him all along from a political standpoint. However, uh, it, 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 this is what happens when you have one Person who's so vocal about something, and politicians just wanted to give him something to do, and so they created a commission that they're now getting rid of. He's a troublemaker. He's oh, a troublemaker. Oh, wait, before no I want to get okay. Miriam, okay. but, okay. but Jim, we, we, we we're gotta, both we,
1: thinking the same thing. We got
3: to talk about the 20th case. <laughs> okay, the 20th case was, was a complaint that came from Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle against the city of Decatur. Right, he lost that case. Right, the state had to pony up twelve thousand dollars in legal fees. So it was, it was, it was, it was not used very wisely, and it cost money.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, Amir. Why don't you jump in here? By the way, we should say that when he says there was a newspaper that helped him, uh, the DA King get where he was, the Marietta Daily Journal gave him a platform. He had a column in there that he was using to spread his anti-immigrant uh, message. Uh, pretty. Uh, 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 yeah. Like
4: I think the um, Immigration Enforcement Review Board was a exercise and institutionalized xenophobia driven by D.A. King, and uh, I'm not sure how much of an issue this shift is in. Both It was passed unanimously by both houses to disband this, and I think we're ready to move on. There is still, you know, a a xenophobic conversation going on. Senator Perdue kind of banging the drum of a five-alarm emergency at the national border, which is just fundamentally false, and I think buying into President Trump's narrative um, but, look, this is it's a state that—I'm um, I'm the child of an immigrant who immigrated here in the late 1960s, and I'm the child of an immigrant who immigrants immigrated here eight generations ago to Georgia in the late 1700s. We're all immigrants. This is a state that's going to flourish based on immigration. A country that's going to flourish based on immigration. It has and will continue to. Uh, and I think our policies, while we may need immigration reform, need to reflect uh, a more open mindset. Right.
1: The reason I brought this up, and I want to get to this even though we're short on time, is that— Governor. Governor Kemp now has a bill sitting on his desk, the purpose of which was completely different from a measure that ended up—I guess this is one of those 40th-day measures that we're suddenly realizing—the bill calls calls for the disbanding of this Immigration Enforcement Review Board. And this is a guy who ran a primary campaign on saying he's going to go out with his pickup truck and pick up undocumented Georgians. I I don't know what he's going to do with this measure and whether it is going to be if he signs the bill, how his base is going to respond.
0: Well, I think, I mean, this is one of those things we're sure to take a step back that suggests that sometimes, right, we have, we perhaps have, right, a good intention for why we create something. And that it turns out it simply doesn't work. And so stopping the thing that doesn't work doesn't mean we don't care about the issue. It means that this thing doesn't work. And it, it's turned out that this board costs a lot I, of money I think, and I
3: think it I doesn't think, work. I think uh, you might have some people talking in Brian Kemp's ear right now mm-hmm. saying this would be a good idea or if mm-hmm. if you know if you want to if you want to come across as something somebody who is moving more toward the middle and yep. uh with go ahead uh, and sign the bill with uh pro-business policy go ahead
2: and sign well it. and I, you can
0: also say it's gonna it will it will save the state money it costs money to run an independent commission
2: i think it's the right thing to do from a public policy standpoint and it happens to be good politics for republicans right who are constantly being accused of being xenophobic even when you raise legitimate questions about border security and, and immigration policy which is fundamentally flawed and we all know it and nobody can come together to fix it republican or democrat
1: He's Garrett. You got the last word on today's Political (laughs) Rewind. (laughs) That is Heath Garrett. Jim Galloway has been uh, with us. Uh, Jim, you'll be back with me uh, for Monday's show, I'm glad to say. Uh, Amir Faroqi and uh, Amy Steigerwald, thank you two for uh, being here for a terrific discussion today. That's all the time we have for Political Rewind today. As I said, we'll be back here on Monday at 2. Please join us then. I'm Bill Nigat. See ya. (laughs)